0: Hello and welcome to this seventh episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. I'm Ed Hill, and as they say, I'm your host (laughs) for this particular podcast. So just to say in a thou what I'm doing, the podcast revolves around the journals of my great-great-grandfather William Mowbray Scott uh, that he wrote in the 1840s about his time spent in Europe as an engineer on the railway, and then his subsequent journey out to Mexico, where he works in the Mint. And that happens to coincide with the time of the Mexican-United States War. It tends to be termed the Mexican-American War. Anyway, his time in Mexico happens to coincide with that conflict as well, which was uh, certainly very significant in terms of the expansion of the USA. So basically what I do is I read a bit from the journals and then I stop from time to time to explain, sometimes at quite long length, what William has just talked about or mentioned. So I've got to do one or two, I think they call them housekeeping things, you know, you go on a tour round some facility somewhere and uh, they, they always come up with the term, just a few housekeeping things and then it's usually, um just to let you know, if there is a fire drill, uh, the muster point is out in the car park by the rubbish bins. Uh, although we're not expecting one today. I don't know what it's got to do with housekeeping. So firstly, if you've been listening to these podcasts and enjoying them, um, just to remind you, do subscribe and do tell your friends and family and anyone else who you think might be interested in listening to them. That all helps to add to the listenership. Do write reviews and things on the various podcast platforms on which you are listening to this broadcast. You can also um, check out the Twitter account dedicated to the podcast. That's uh, Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3GA Grand Tour. That's the number three, so three G, a grand tour. But yeah, that's it really. Just do what you can to spread the word if if you're enjoying it, and if you're not enjoying it, just tell people about it anyway. You never know; they might might be sort of people who ignore your advice. Uh, I've got plenty of friends like that. Just another thing to say, you know, it is great to get a dialogue going on about the journals, and I do want to thank a friend of mine who's been listening, Jane. We were talking about possibly one day doing the trip itself, uh, following in William's footsteps, which of course I'd love to do. And on the uh, online conversation that we were having, we wondered, you know, if the Hotel de Bristol was still in Paris. And Jane very kindly (laughs) looked it up, and there is still a Hotel de Bristol in Paris. This one dates back to 1925, but I think it's very close to the area where the Hotel de Bristol, which William mentions, was And it's certainly mucho money to stay there, so um, pretty posh gaffe, as they'd say. I don't think William was slumming it, actually, because when he's going round Europe, because there's another hotel he stays in in Switzerland, which again is actually still there. And that is a very, very posh hotel these days as well. So um, if they were posh now, I imagine they were quite posh in William's time. So uh, he must have had a bit of of brass, as they say, to uh, stay where he was staying. Although, actually, as you'll discover in this podcast, he was very familiar with the coinage industry and, and making, literally making money. Maybe he was going around Europe with counterfeit coins and just paying his way that way. Oh dear. Bent as a 9 bob note, as they say. I, I think he was a very respectful gentleman. I'm, I'm sure he wasn't doing that. Funny enough, he doesn't talk about currency much when he's travelling. He does when he's in Mexico, and of course I suppose that makes sense because he's literally involved in producing the coins there, but um, he doesn't, round Europe, you know, I, I, I don't very often hear him mention currencies such as the lira or franc or, or whatever the um, equivalent to the uh, pound currency would have been. Anyway, so that's about it. It's, it's gone on a bit long. I'm trying to keep this short because th- this episode has been quite difficult to edit and it's consequently ended up Slightly on the longer side than i'd ideally like I ideally like to keep this about under the fifty minute time if I can, and I suspect this one's going to be just a bit over that. It's because there it was an awful a lot to talk about. It's always a difficult choice to decide what you do talk about and what you don't talk about when you're doing the research, particularly in Paris, because you can imagine each sort of thing he's looking at can have a tremendous amount of history about it. I try to pick the more quirky sort of elements of the history of these things that William's seeing and, um, of course, as well, what, what he's actually saying, what she's actually describing. So it's time now to carry on with the next instalment, where he's now got to the Bourse or Exchange, basically the stock markets in Paris. So that's where we're going to kick off from now. This is William. He's been walking around all these very grand buildings in central Paris. Much as you would do as a tourist these days, and he's got to the bourse, which is the stock exchange, and he begins to describe what he sees there. Anyway, I uh, hope you do enjoy this next installment. <phone rings> is certainly one of the first buildings in Paris. It presents a parallelogram, 212 feet long and 136 broad, and the four fronts comprise of 64 columns of the Corinthian order, reaching the second story. This forms an imposing colonnade on each side of perfect proportions. A heavy style of 14 columns in the principal front with an ascent of 16 steps occupies the entire breadth of the façade. The bourse, or exchange itself, is thus raised on a sub-basement overlooking the adjacent houses. But now for the interior. You must leave your cane, umbrella, or arms if you have any, and, being without a casque or blouse, caps, and smock-frocks being prohibited in the bourse costume regulations, you then enter. Before you is the grand staircase, with a wrought bronze balustrade leading to the Tribunal of Commerce, where all matters relating to trade and commerce, bankruptcies, etc., are tried before merchants and traders as judges, and a lawyer for a president. Now let us enter the spacious hall, 116 feet long and 75 broad, and capable of holding 2,500 persons. But it is two o'clock, and business is commencing, and there is one of the most infernal gabblings that ever a mortal listened to. French, Dutch and German, Spanish, Portuguese and Italian, Greek and Russian, English, Turkish, Danish and a host of others, each country having its name inscribed on a different column around which they concrete. The hall is covered in with an iron roof and turning your eyes up to look at it, you ask yourself, what are those magnificent bas reliefs They represent the four corners of the globe, but go into the galleries and you will find, by close inspection, that the apparently bas-reliefs are nothing but white paintings on a flat ceiling. The illusion is immense, and many a wager has been won and lost, such is the perfection of those admirable paintings. In the gallery also is a magnificent clock cased in plate glass, which shows the time to the interior as well as the exterior of the bourse. The business done on the Bourse at Paris will not bear for a moment with that of our royal exchange. The one is the working of the commerce of a mighty nation. The other is a complete gambling affair. In short, the Bourse is now the centralised hell of all abolished hells. Right, so uh, I'm going to stop at this point because this is the end of William's ramblings around Paris on this day and so that would be a good place to stop and talk about where he's just been visiting so this bourse or exchange that william's talking about that's now known as the palais bronyard and it's called that because the architect who designed it was alexander theodore Brongniart and it's no longer the stock exchange anymore again it was another thing by napoleon he wanted to bring the stock exchange trading all into one place. It was his idea to do that, so he instigated it. There was then a commission to try and design a building, and this uh, Bronyard architect's submission was chosen. It was sort of altered a bit down the years before it was finally built. So apparently Napoleon laid the first stone in 1808, but it didn't actually open until 1826, I think and it is this very grand-looking building with columns surrounding it all around the outer edge. I think it was, in a way, a revolutionary idea to have the stock exchange all in one place. It did trade right up until 1998, and of course that was mainly to do with the introduction of electronic trading. William talks about this gabbling noise that's going on, and that is, I suppose, what evolved into what was used on many stock exchanges, What is what they call an, an open outcry system. So basically, where the all these guys that he's talking about are yabbling in a way, that is actually called the pit. And you've probably seen it, I think, back in films like Wall Street and stuff. Before electronic trading really came in, the stockbrokers would all stand on the trading room floor and they all wave their arms about and shout a lot and go, buy, buy, sell, sell, all that stuff, you know, you see, very much an 80s thing. Red braces, Wall Street, greed is good, all that period of time when uh, the stock exchange was really taking off. In in a way, what actually was happening was, in fact, it was the introduction of electronic and phone trading that was moving away from the open outcry system, which actually meant people started making a a lot more money on the stock exchange, really, and I suppose some of it sort of, particularly in the UK, old jobs for the boys sort of establishment thing was eroded away a bit and it it became a more of a an industry where if you were uh, a savvy trader you could make money so william is essentially what he's describing there with all this gabbling of noise and saying it's the hell of all hells is um that open outcry system and they do use hand gestures as well to do the trading you know because of all the noise (laughs) and that and i always i've always thought it's ironic it just says what the stock exchange is really because where else do you get hand exchanges and and gestures done to indicate trades and it's at the race course isn't it and gambling with the turf accountants as they're called so the book is at the race course all use i think they call it tic-tac don't they sort of way of hand gesturing to indicate taking bets and there's that association isn't there with the stock exchange it is gambling let's be honest it's all conjecture Anyway, enough about my railings of the evils of um, capitalism. You're a goddamn commie. (laughs) Apparently, Open Outcry does still go on a little bit at some stock exchanges. They still do it on the New York Stock Exchange for a few very, very sort of high-value stocks. I think they initially do it there and then things are subsequently traded electronically. And the other exchange where it still goes on apparently is the London Metal Exchange. And again, there they they have, if you like, an initial meeting that is done in a kind of open outcry way. And then they uh, subsequently actually do the trades electronically. There was also trading went on another sort of circular building as well, which is all called the Bourse. So I think trading also migrated partly from here to that building as well, which is another grand building in Paris. It did continue until 1998 here at the Bourse Exchange. It's now a um, sort of convention centre or business facility. They kind of hold things like fashion shows there and stuff like that as well. But it does say in big letters on the entablature above the columns at the entrance, Bourse. So that's that. Now, I did want to talk a little bit about this Artwork that William describes, you know, being very convincing, and that term is uh, for that sort of artwork, you may know, is called trompe-alloy. In French, that means deceive the eye. The other technical artistic term for it is forced perspective. But it's that whole thing, you know, when artists started painting, they, as far back as Giotto, they started experimenting with perspective and uh, doing sort of tricks of the eye and things like that. And, of course, it's been used in many circumstances. Also in theatres where, obviously, you had a backdrop and you wanted it to make it look sort of more three-dimensional than it was in reality. So it's got a very long history. There's a really nice example of it by a Spanish artist and this was done in 1874 by Borel de Caso and the painting is called Escaping Criticism and it's a picture of sort of a little boy it's like he's climbing out of the picture frame so uh, his sort of hands are actually on the edge of the picture frame and his feet and he's sort of climbing his way out of the picture frame towards the viewer so that's a really nice example of it of this trompe but um yeah it's obviously it's been very widely used you could say it was a cheaper way of not actually doing real plaster work and real formed work on a ceiling or a wall using this technique to deceive the eye and of course it's been used in lots of churches and grand buildings to make something that is essentially a two-dimensional drawing look three-dimensional right back to the journal again March 31st, visited the Palace of the Luxembourg, the Mint, Chamber of Deputies, Hotels des Invalides, Polytechnic School, and the Champs-de-Mars. Leaving my hotel early this morning, I passed through the Place de Coracelle, then crossed the Seine by the Pont des Arts. I stood for a few moments to look at the Palace de Justice, a large, spacious and black building, then hastening up a long and winding street, when, lo, the Luxembourg in all its glory was before me. Its rulers, to be sure, have changed pretty often, but the copy of the Florence Petit Palais remains, unimpaired by time. Mary de' Medici, the widow of Henry IV, built it in 1612, and the architect was de Brosse, Sir so, Salomon de Brosse. The original site was the Hotel of the Duc Epony luxembourg Mademoiselle de Pompadour and the Duchess of Guise have been both domiciled therein. In 1694, Louis the Fourteenth bought it off the latter, and subsequently the Duchess of Brunswick and Mademoiselle de resided at the palace. It returned to the crown under Louis the Sixteenth, who gave it to Monsieur, that was a, a title given to the king's eldest brother, who afterwards became Louis the Eighteenth. During the Revolution, the Luxembourg was converted into a prison. Under the Consulate, it was a Senate, and now it is the Chamber of the Peers. Since the glorious three days, it has been the High Tribunal, before which have appeared the Regicides, the Republicans, the Royalists, and the Imperialists. Before its bar have stood the Ministers of Charles X, Polignac and his associates, the Republicans of Paris and Lyon, and Giuseppe Fieschi, and his accomplices of the Infernal Machine memory, Armand, Barbes, Davnes, Meunier. Meunier was actually a um, a very successful general of Napoleon. Prince Louis Napoleon. So basically, William's listing all these great men that over the years have been put on trial at this tribunal. Prince Louis Napoleon, etc. A strange medley of men. And who may yet figure upon it? Who dare predict? The building itself is nearly a square. The front towards the Rue de Tourmont and the garden is 360 feet long, and the remaining fronts about 300 feet. There are four square pavilions in one extensive court surrounded by porticoes. The garden of the Luxembourg is the public promenade of the Faubourg of St Germain. There are several fine statues and vases, and there is a noble alley having for a perspective the observatory. At the extremity of this alley, on the vacant spot between the railing of the Luxembourg garden and the observatory, Napoleon's bravest of the brave, Marshal Ney, was shot in 1815. The wall with some bloodstains yet remains to be seen. When Ney was shot, apparently he, he actually ordered the soldiers to fire himself. So, Next to the garden of the Tuileries, those of the Luxembourg take precedence. In some respect, the elevated positions of the latter render them superior to any Parisian promenade. There is a large and beautiful sheet of water, and the walks are ornamented with trees. The abbreviations and improvements in these gardens of late years have been very great. The light and elegant dome of Doric and Ionic orders is very striking. The gallery of paintings contains a collection of works of modern French masters. It is very extensive and the collection are some excellent pictures. The saloon assigned to the peers is semicircular in form, but at that period it was undergoing repairs and alterations and therefore visitors were excluded but from what I could learn, those apartments are very magnificent. Adjoining the gardens is another large edifice called Luxembourg House, built by that celebrated and wily statesman Cardinal Richelieu for his mother. It afterwards belonged to the Prince de Combes. During the Republic, the directory was established here, and here it received General Bonaparte on his return from Egypt. It was afterwards occupied by him when First Consul, and here was the ill-fated Marshal Ney confined and shot in the garden, as already mentioned. Here also was Prince Polignac and his despotic colleagues confined previous to the trial for those acts that filled the streets of Paris with blood and cost Charles X a kingdom and a throne. Right, so I thought I'd stop here to talk a bit about the Luxembourg Palace. There's actually quite a lot of history related to this building. William's broad outline of history is pretty accurate. At the moment, the Luxembourg, as he describes, it did evolve from being this sort of royal palace into now being a assembly. And at the moment, it is the assembly of the upper house of French government. So it's sort of similar to um, the House of Lords in the UK. It's elected a bit differently. I think the representatives are elected by the mayors of the various regions of France. And uh, and that's how they get placed as uh, members of the Senate. I think the first thing that when I was reading the journals the first time that immediately kind of caught my attention was this reference that William made to the Infernal Machine and Giuseppe Fieschi. I thought, What's this infernal machine? and I looked that up and so the Infernal Machine, just to describe what it looks like, if you imagine a sort of a giant set of panpipes set over on an angle and mounted on a wooden frame. But they're not panpipes. There's much more lethal application than uh, music. Basically, it was a row of 25 barrels that were then loaded with eight musket balls or bullets and lots of other stuff and then used as an attempt to assassinate King Louis-Philippe, who's the king at the time that William is in Paris. So this Giuseppe Fieschi, he's obviously quite a character. If you see the pictures of him, he he looks very villainous, but I think it's because a lot of the representations of him were taken after he'd suffered injuries firing this thing at King Louis-Philippe. So basically the idea was it was a uh, 28th of July 1835 there was going to be a big parade and inspection of the troops by the king so what giuseppe fieschi and his uh, accomplices uh chap called pierre moray and théodore pepper they all got together and decided they're going to try and assassinate old king louis philippe and the idea would be to build this thing and they built it opposite where they knew the parade was sort of going to go past and fired it the description of it is called a volley gun but it's just basically a row of barrels that all get fired in this case at the same time i mean it was a pretty bad incident when giuseppe Fieschi fired this thing it actually killed i think it killed 16 people immediately and then two more later died so it killed 18 people in total 22 people were were injured and a lot of them had to have limbs amputated and stuff like this. So it was a it was a very fatal instrument. Unfortunately, <laughs> the one thing that it didn't do was kill King Louis Philippe. <laughs> um, now I, I have read that it, just as he fired it, old old king sort of bent down to take some bit of paper off someone or something, and um, it literally just all these projectiles that came firing out of the gun at the same time missed him, or he got a slight graze to his forehead it killed quite a lot of officers, military officers around him, but it missed him, it missed his sons who were also present at this parade as well so as assassination attempts go you saw I have to say Giuseppe, you had to do one thing you just had to do one thing <laughs> yes, but look at my machine he <laughs> me an machine he's beautiful Yes, but it didn't kill King Louis Philippe, did it? Ah, oh dear. So he was. Seems to be quite a character. This Giuseppe Fessi. He fought in the Napoleonic Wars at one time. He was recognised for his heroism. And then he got involved in some other sort of military expedition. But then he got arrested for basically for stealing a cow, and he got ten years imprisonment for that personally he doesn't seem to have had many political convictions i think he would be described as an anarchist but his accomplices were more politically driven in their attempts to assassinate king louis philippe i mean it's sort of a terrible incident that you just sort of think you know it's a bit like in the james bond films when the arch villain comes up with some ridiculously overcomplicated way to try and kill james bond you know just just shoot him just shoot him. and um you think why? Why do you could have just had one gun, and that would have achieved the main aim what you were trying to do. But anyway, so the infernal machine of memory that William refers to here, this this is it. There is a picture of it. I mean, it looks like a real right old Heath Robinson affair. Anyway, and actually, what happened is when he set it off, thing virtually half of it exploded at the same time. Anyway, and that's why he got terrible injuries and in, to his face and his. Upper body, this is Giuseppe, and if you see pictures of him, you know, he looks very sort of almost like quite gruesome. And that's, but I say that's mostly done after he'd fired this thing, which blew parts of his hand off and made a huge hole in his head as well. But anyway, eventually he was tried and he died by guillotine, as did his accomplices. And there's a gruesome picture of his head painted after. It was uh, decapitated and suitably, suitably gruesome, but apparently they dissected his head to, and his brain to see if he displayed any signs of madness and stuff like this. But I, I don't know, it's just one of those things where I kind of, my initial response is, why this you over know, this overcomplicated way of trying to kill the king when you could have just had one gun and probably would have much more successfully? <laughs> Achieve what we were hoping to do than this twenty-five barrel contraption. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I suppose you shouldn't really laugh about things like this, but um, rather weirdly, as well to me, this seems kind of bizarre. He was celebrated in Russia because this design of his machine was seen as a sort of prototype for the Russian rocket launchers that were later developed in World War II. So the Russians decided to sort of honour him for his invention. Somewhere in Russia, there's a plaque celebrating his uh, his infernal machine. So, as I say, that was what initially drew me into looking into the history of the Luxembourg. Was that reference that William made to this in, infernal machine and. I have to say, take my hat off to old Louis-Philippe. After this all happened and this carnage happened, he he carried on doing the inspection of the troops and he sort of just went ahead with the planned day of, um, I think it was to mark the Revolution of 1830, but that day, the inspection day, he just went ahead and carried on with the the rest of the day's proceedings. So fair, fair play to him. He'd seen this carnage happen around him and then just carried on. It's weird these things. I remember seeing a documentary about the Farnborough Air Show where there was a terrible crash and 50 people were killed on the day when one of these planes crashed into the crowd and and then they just carried on doing the rest of the flying display the rest of the, this is in the 50s. So he made a stir of stuff then, you know, but I mean, now it seems unimaginable an event like that would happen and people just carry on. Oh, never mind. Never <laughs> mind, 50 people dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, anyway, I just really want to see this latest fighter aircraft. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and old King Louis-Philippe there, he just thought, well, there we are. There's 18 people dead, but no, I must carry on and inspect the troops. Now, just go on to Polignac here. So, the Polignac that... William is referring to here is Jules de Polignac. Now the Polignac were, if you like, a noble family in France, so they have sort of long history. So if you look them up, you'll 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 find out quite a few mentions of their name and various members of that family and their involvement in French history. But the particular one that William is referring to here is Jules de Polignac, and I think if you remember before I spoke about a group called the Ultra-Royalists who wanted to restore French government in a way that was similar to how it had been before the French Revolution. So basically, as you can imagine, I suppose, because a lot of vested interest, they wanted it to return to that way. And I think, if you remember, I also mentioned that Charles X... When the monarchy was restored after Napoleon's time in power, there was first Louis XVIII and then Charles X, his brother became king, and Charles X was a lot more sort of right-wing, and he essentially agreed with the movement of the ultra-royalists. I mean, if you're king, who, who doesn't want to get more power, I suppose? But this Polignac, in a way, is is quite easy to paint him as a sort of dark villain of history, sort of manipulative and and so forth, gradually making his way into power. But just to sort of quickly say what happened with him, he was appointed as the sort of first minister by Charles X. This is approaching the revolution of 1830. And Charles X was increasingly getting paranoid about the anti-royalist feeling that there was in France, and so he appointed Polignac, and Polignac with all his cronies, decided to implement this thing that they call the Four Ordinances. I mean, basically, it was kind of a crackdown on civil liberties, so if you like, a lot of things were restricted, like the freedom of the press, and I think the Assembly was disbanded as well. It was the Four Ordinances, the introduction of the Four Ordinances that set off the Revolution of 1830, so... Obviously, there's all sorts of things that you can discover about him. But I thought one quite interesting element to him, and I don't mean this in a a good way at all, and this is why, in a way, you can sort of um, see he sort of represents that, for want of a better word, establishment figure who wanted to maintain the status quo in a way that suited them and not other people, was he was also a slave owner. And apparently he owned 628 slaves out in the Caribbean. And there are some connections with the British Empire here as well. The islands on which he had these slaves, I think, were under British rule. I mean, there's just some really grim statistics here, but some sort of quite hard to believe as well. When slavery was abolished in the British Empire they actually, as part of the deal to have that done, they thought they should compensate some of the slave trade owners. And old Jules de Polignac was one of these people who was compensated. And apparently at the time, the British government took out a loan of £15 million, which now would be worth apparently £1.46 billion, to pay off basically these Various slave owners to compensate them for the fact that they were losing their slaves because we were abolishing slavery within the empire. Now, th- this is quite a hard figure to believe, really, but that money was still being paid off, that loan for taking out that money was still being paid off by the British public right up until 2015. So, we were still paying, effectively paying the compensation to these slave traders right up until 2015, which is incredible, really, to think. But, you know, legally, I suppose, they were they were entitled to this this compensation for his involvement in uh, sparking off the July Revolution. Polypniak was another one who appeared before this assembly sort of effectively on trial, although he wasn't executed in anything. I think he eventually was exiled, and I think he actually ended up in the UK. That's old Polygnac I thought I'd mention, and his links to the Luxembourg Palace. Lastly, I thought I'd just mention two people associated with the Luxembourg Palace. One sort of hundred years before Williams there, and one about a hundred years after. The first one is one he mentions, and it's this Elizabeth de Orleans, or the Duke Duchess de Berry, as she was called. She is sort of an amazing character, really she was sort of well known for her promiscuity but uh, actually a very complicated figure and when you look more deeply into it initially when you read about her she was a sort of scurrilous member of french high society who was known for having lots of affairs and she was terribly flamboyant when she was resident at the luxembourg palace she held many many parties and um Apparently she was sort of meant to have received the Tsar of Russia there wearing this spectacular black dress. But she was also pregnant at the time. But, uh, you know, she's in many ways known at the time in sort of a scurrilous way. She had all these affairs and she'd often sort of dis- disappear from public view while these pregnancies were happening or coming to term. And so you sort of initially think, Ooh, she was a bit saucy. And satirists of the time were seem to have been uh, incredibly, including Voltaire, seemed to have been incredibly rude and cruel about her. Really, because when you look at it more deeply, she was married off to some chinless Duke of Berry or whatever he was. He was he treated her really badly when they were first married. Anyway, he had his own mistresses, and so understandably, perhaps you could say in. Uh, I wouldn't say retaliation, but in a, perhaps in an understandable way to get comfort, she had her own dalliances with men. But when you look at it, her life is actually incredibly tragic. She had all these pregnancies, and nearly all the children died. Certainly, the three that she had with the Duke de Berry didn't live longer than a month and nearly all the children that then she then had with subsequent lovers died as well, and none of them lived much beyond being born, or they were either stillborn. I think there's speculation that maybe one survived, one whose father, who is thought to have been a chap called Chevalier de Rion, it's thought maybe one of the daughters that she had by him was hustled away and spent the rest of her life as a nun. So aside from that one child, all these children and difficult pregnancies that she had, nearly all of them ended in failure. And the one child that did survive, she probably would have never known anyway, as it was probably taken away from her almost immediately after the birth. After the Duke de Berry died in a hunting accident, quite frankly, good riddance to him by the sounds of it, She inherited a lot of money, and and that's when this reputation for her very showy lifestyle began. Well, she was at the Luxembourg Palace here, but on one level you can take it very easily that, oh, what a character, you know, and she certainly was. She was tremendously flamboyant, but underneath it there must have also been this tragedy as well of her her life. I mean, this is the thing I find hard to believe, really, when you read all this stuff and think, Okay. She had another affair and, and, and so forth. She died when she was only 23. So all this happened to her in her life. And she was only 23 when she died. And she died again, sadly, after a, another affair. She'd had several very bad previous pregnancies that had nearly, nearly killed her. But when she died, she was pregnant again. A very interesting figure. She packed an awful lot in into those 23 years. So it's very easy to uh, initially take her reputation in one way, but when you dig a little deeper and try and think what was perhaps was the motivation for this flamboyant lifestyle that she, she had, I mean, you just think on an emotional level, she went through an awful lot. The last person I'm going to mention, who also resided at the Luxembourg Palace, was Hermann Goering during the Nazis' occupation of Paris in the Second World War, and old. Hermann Goring, as we've seen in the pictures and in the films, very much the sort of comedy Billy Bunter figure of Hitler's henchman. And uh, I suppose in a way it's not surprising that of all the places in Paris that he would decide he had to reside in, it would be the Luxembourg Palace. He was a flamboyant character himself. It's interesting, sort of a, b- a building in history that seems to have attracted these flamboyant types. But um, he was resided there I mean, I don't want to make it simplistic, but, you know, Churchill spent most of his time, a lot of his time, in a, in a bunker during the Second World War. But Hermann Goering decided he'd have the Palace at Luxembourg. That's a very simplistic way of putting it. I mean, Churchill's had uh, Chartwell House as well. So, you know, let's, let's not get too hung up on those sort of trite comparisons. But there is something about Hermann Goering that is sort of comical in a way. And uh, he's often portrayed that way in films, isn't he? As being this um, rather effete member of... Hitler's close uh, accomplices so that's the, the last thing to say about the Luxembourg palace it's had a very very interesting history and this has been a long explanation about it leaving the luxembourg and again reaching the banks of the seine i proceeded to the mint a large building erected in 1771 there are some fine allegorical figures in the front of the building and it is a very conspicuous object on the quai de orsay the machinery is very indifferent and as proof of that the french government have lately entered into a contract with my late employers to supply them with new similar to the royal mint in london then i moved on to the chamber of the deputies This chamber holds its sittings in the ancient Bourbon Palace, situated directly opposite the Pont de la Concorde. It formerly belonged to the Princess of the House of Conde, and it was adorned with every splendour that luxury could devise or wealth command. Elegant pavilions, spacious galleries and gardens, and a theatre. It consequently early fell prey to the devastating fury of the revolutionists. It was then plundered of all its costly furniture, and remained unoccupied until 1798 when the Council of the 500 – so that was just another one of these sort of legislative bodies that was set up during the initial French Revolution – when the Council of the 500 took possession of it and held within its princely walls their republican assemblies. This building was originally commenced in 1772 by the Duchess of Bourbon, and received various additions till its completion in its present form in 1807, when the splendid peristyle, that's uh, basically a, a row of columns, was erected by command of Napoleon from the designs of the architect Bernard Poyer. This peristyle is 100 feet in length, composed of 12 Corinthian columns of elegant proportions surmounted by a pediment, the tympanum, That's the triangular centre of a portico. So you'll have the columns and then above that you've got the entablature and then a triangular bit going above the top of the portico. So the tympanum is the, the triangular bit that's in the middle of that bit above the columns. The tympanum of which is ornamented with statues. So yeah, I mean that's quite an often architectural feature. You'll see statues placed Above the entablature, but within this triangular bit of the roof part of the portico. The entrance is by 29 steps, at the foot of which, upon pedestals, 18 feet high, are colourful statues of justice and prudence. There are also in front of the building sitting figures of Le Hopital (whistles) d'Augostier. You what? Apologies there. Um, I've read that slightly wrong, but it's um, just because of the way it's written in the journal. That's actually two people that William is referring to there. One is Henri-Francois d'Agasson and the other is Michel de Hopital and they were both former French statesmen or chancellors. So basically it's just some statues of some grand, former, renowned French chancellors or statesmen. There were also statues of Sully and Colbert. This facade cost £70,000 sterling. The interior of the Hall of Assembly is semicircular. In the front of the president's desk is a fine bas-relief representing the history of France. There are also some good statues of Lycurgus, he was a legendary lawgiver of Sparta, Solon, an Athenian lawgiver and statesman and poet, Cato, Demosthenes, Brutus and Cicero. So, a bunch of either Greek or Roman statesmen, lawgivers, you know, the sort of thing. Plato, Aristotle, bods like that. And now it's time for the boring anecdote of the podcast. Actually, I'll just bring up here that in a former life, as I mentioned, I used to do architectural stonework. And we once did a project at a well-known popular musical entertainer's house whose name must be withheld for legal reasons. Constructing what is called a rogues gallery. Well, it's called a rogues gallery. It's basically a wall with a lot of niches in it. And in the wall, you were meant to have the heads and busts of your enemies. Now, this was what I was told it was called at the time. But actually, looking at it now, I can't see any architectural reference to this term whatsoever. The earliest term a Rose Gallery, as you might imagine, dates back to the mid-1800s, and apparently that famous detective Pinkerton was the first person to use that term in America. It's basically a collection of photographs of criminal types, or criminals. So I don't know why this... Ball was described to me as being called a rogues gallery. I've been telling people for years that, oh yes, this is an architectural term, a rogues gallery, in which you place your, the, your, you place your enemies in the niches in the wall. And um, of course, this is what was done in German times. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that was a load of old... So, someone called it Rose It would be interesting if someone out there does know of this term being used in that sort of architectural sense. Getting back to the one at this celebrity entertainer's place. We didn't have his enemies in there anyway. But we did have these niches and in them we did have busts of various Greek and Roman bods like Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, etc. etc. So... I just thought I'd tell you that anecdote. Really, a bit boring, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so we were building a uh, it's called a new thing, of uh, and, uh, and uh, it's, I didn't know if it's uh, But it's a classical architecture. This is a, a wall in which you place the busts of your enemy. No, you don't. It's a loud old. are galleries for the public, for the foreign investors, the peers, and a separate space for the reporters of the press. The numerous apartments and galleries of this very magnificent building are all fitted up with great splendour and commodiously arranged. The gardens attached to the Palace Bourbon, with a terrace 300 feet long, commands a fine view of the Champs-Elysees, Tuileries, Place de la Concorde, the villages of Chelleux, Passy, Atoile, etc., The residence of the Minister of the Interior is also in the Palais Bourbon. Right, I'm going to stop here again just to say a few words about a couple of things. I'm doing them in reverse order. Firstly, the Palais Bourbon. This is effectively the home of the National Assembly, so it would be equivalent, really, to our House of Commons. It was this royal palace that was owned by Madame Bourbon and uh, then... Basically, after the first revolution, it was taken over by this National Assembly and converted to be a parliament with a semicircular chamber where the deputies or representatives sit. So, and basically, from that point on, it's kind of always been, in one way or another, that sort of building. The only thing I would say, as William mentions, to make it look even grander, because it's it's right next to the Seine, when Napoleon ordered that to be built, this very grand portico on the front that william's describing with all these columns i just like the absolute self-assurance of napoleon initially those statues and the image that was created the sculptures that william describes in the tympanum that's in the triangular bit of the portico above the columns it was a scene of him winning victory at the battle of austenis so Basically, he spent a lot of money having the building improved, particularly representing his own victories. Politically, at the time, it was rather weakened by his dictatorship. But what happened was, after the fall of Napoleon, they decided it wasn't appropriate to have these celebratory sculptures to the great man there anymore, so these were dismantled, and the ones that William is describing were put in their place and at the time of King Louis-Philippe, that's what William would have been looking at. Also, just to say, around about this time, there was some refurbishment going on of the interior, and it may well have been going on while William was there, because the, the time sort of suggests this, but a very young Delacroix was employed to, to a lot of the paintings of the interior of the chamber and other parts of the building, which, um, as I mentioned before, this Prime Minister... Aldolf Thiers was sort of in charge of doing it. I think he was very much uh, the political person behind trying to represent King Louis-Philippe's reign as, as a new era for France. Apparently, King Louis-Philippe absolutely hated Delacroix's paintings, but <laughs> but there we are. And they mentioned the Council of the 500. At the moment, it has a, a little bit more than 500 representatives. Like a lot of things, it's, it's gradually been expanded and built on over the years, there's a Again, around about the time William was there, they rebuilt a very big library adjoining it as well. All done in this neoclassical Italianate style. So now, apparently it consists of 9,500 rooms and there are more than 3,000 people employed there. So very similar to our House of Parliament. But of course, in France, they don't have the two chambers, upper chamber and lower chamber, in the same building the next thing i wanted to talk about bear in mind this may not be brief because rereading these journals again sometimes things come up that i'd forgotten about but in this passage william mentions his former employer and frustratingly he doesn't say who that was this is one of these occasions there's a couple of times it happens in the journals where you think why didn't you say there's a a name of a lady who he's quoting in uh, mexico about their habits when it comes to courtship and he quotes her and he never says what her name is and it's just sort of frustrating and this is another case where he says oh my former employers have been contracted to provide new equipment for the mint in Paris and he doesn't say who it was and this this is kind of really one of the few times where there's any reference to his previous engineering life before he gets to Italy and then Mexico He mentions that he worked in the Mint, and I must admit, i have forgotten that bit. So obviously that makes sense then, why he's employed to go out to Mexico to help them with the Mint there. Now, I have done quite a lot of research into this, and I think it might be a fair assumption to say that William may well have been employed by a firm called Bolton & Watt. And you may have heard of them. There's Watt's steam engines, famously one of the early successful steam engines and Bolton was another very clever engineer as well. Now, the history of the firm dates back a bit earlier than William's talking about now, than the 1840s. It actually begins at the very end of the 1790s. But William, he mentions, my company supplied similar machinery here to the Royal Mint in London. So Bolton, one of the things that he did was he through mechanisation and by teaming up his own coin pressing machinery with Watts' steam engine started a process of mechanising the production of coins and also making them much harder to counterfeit and much more regular in shape. You can imagine up until then the coin pressing process was a relatively basic one where someone would put a blank around blank in a thing and a big lever would be pulled on a machine with a big heavy weight to press the image of it but the repetition of the coin each time would alter a little bit you know depending on how the blank had been put in how it was placed on the machine stuff and it was quite a slow process it was a very manual process you could only make one coin per second about and that was with a team of guys constantly taking it in turns to work the levers on this big press and a little boy unfortunately had the job of placing the blank in the one and then taking it out again so even if you were really quick at it you could only do about one coin per second making it this way. And also, as I say, particularly the copper coins could be easily forged because uh, they weren't consistent enough in their output to make them hard to forge. So Bolton's work was very much involved in making this whole process more mechanised and he teamed it up with what steam engine. And these steam engines, of course, then get used in many, many factory environments as well. Because they could be linked to any bit of mechanism that could do some whatever application it could be an application in a cotton mill it could be an application pumping water out of a mine, so this firm grew very large and Bolton set up his own mint in called the Soho mint, which is ironically you might have thought was in in London, but it was the Soho mint was actually in Birmingham, and he started producing coins you know this was around about the eighteen hundreds up until his death in eighteen ten but it became apparent that his way of making coins with his mechanised system was, was much superior to what had been done before. And so I think it mentions about the 1820s, his machinery is bought by the Royal Mint in London to be used there. So although William never ever mentions Birmingham, and I don't think he's really got any ties with Birmingham itself, I suppose he could have been employed as a Overseer of the steam mechanism equipment and engines in the Royal Mint around that time. And obviously, he would have a real understanding of the whole process and the machinery that was needed to then make a mint somewhere else. And these Bolton and Watt coinage machines were exported all around the world as well to other countries. I remember Denmark being one of them, but there were lots of countries. So it makes sense that William would have had a good knowledge, A, of steam engines. And B, coinage and the coinage process, so that makes sense. Why he obviously goes out to Mexico later on to work in the mint there, but obviously I suppose he's just got a very good understanding of steam engines in general, and that is why he goes out to Italy to work on the steam railway there. Although I don't think Bolton and Watt they mentions them making marine engines, but again a marine engine would be a static what you call a static engine in the sense that it's fixed and mounted in the hull of a ship to drive the propeller. So I don't think they made locomotives, things that would pull something along a train track. I can only assume that maybe it was Bolton and Watt is the company that William is referring to here that he was employed by. Because they went on, it was a very long history, this company. It did change its name to James Watt & Co. Their sons took it over and stuff like that. But it went on, I think, until about the eighteen. 90s so it's very possible he could have been employed by them prior to 1840 when he's walking around Paris at this time apparently there is a very extensive archive of this company in the museum of Birmingham so if I had time I'd maybe like to see that archive and and see if there's any mention of a, a William Mowbray Scott as one of their employees so I'm going to finish here it has been a long episode but it's a An appropriate point to stop and then go on to the next bit of william's journals we're nearly at the end of his time in paris actually so the next sort of extract that i read and talk about will probably cover his last few days in paris before he sets off again making his way down to italy so once again thanks for listening if you have enjoyed it do subscribe, also do write reviews of the podcast and anything like that on whatever platform you're listening to. Do follow us on Twitter. It's on Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour, and that's uh, the the number three. So number three, the letter G, Grand Tour. And yeah, it'd be great to, as I've said before, get a, a little bit of feedback from people about the podcast. So that's the end of that one really quite a lot going on and if you have been thanks for listening by the way i'm I'm gonna have to do something about this squeaky chair